Welcome to Tooled Up Education's Researcher of the Month, where Dr. Cathy Weston selects a paper from a notable researcher that will be of interest to parents and school staff everywhere. Dr. Shana Carpenter is a professor of cognitive psychology at Iowa State University. She conducts laboratory and classroom-based research on ways to improve student learning. She specialises in cognitive science principles that can be applied in educational settings to help students remember information, transfer what they've learned to new situations, and improve their awareness of their own learning. Professor Carpenter has published numerous journal articles and book chapters on the scientific study of learning, and her work has been funded by the National Science Foundation and the James S. McConnell Foundation. Shana, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Glad to be here. Um, Shana's joining us today to talk about her work on two important approaches to learning, which are spacing and retrieval. So Shana, a lot of teachers and maybe a lot of parents have heard these terms before, but as someone who's done work in that field, I'd love to hear your definitions of them, please, and maybe why they've been a focus of your research. Yeah, so retrieval, retrieval practice, we sometimes call it. It's a way of practicing learning information, and it means just what it sounds like. If you are trying to learn anything, you can read it over and over again and and look at it and highlight it and recopy notes and so on. Or you can lay it aside and try to retrieve it from memory. And a simple act of retrieving information from memory makes that learning stronger, makes the memories more durable over time. It's like taking an exam, which nobody loves to do, but in a more practice-oriented fashion where you are retrieving in order to strengthen your own learning and memory for the information. Spacing is more of a schedule for how to learn something, and it can involve retrieval, it can involve different ways of learning, but it it has to do with taking more than one learning session and spacing, so to speak, those learning sessions over time. So if you are trying to learn about fractions, you're a middle school student trying to understand how to multiply and divide fractions, you, you do some practice on one day, you come back to it a couple days later, you do some more practice. A couple days later, you do some more practice, as opposed to practicing a very long learning session all in one day. So it's a taking the same amount of time that you would spend and just distributing or spacing in smaller chunks of time. Thank you. So before we get into discussing each of those in detail, it seems from reading your work that you see these two approaches, spacing and retrieval practice, as a real key to improving teaching and learning. So what is it you think that maybe a lot of teachers or students are doing now that's not optimal and that these can specifically help with? Yeah, that's a good question. I think some students do use these methods. I think it's hard to know because they're not required to show us what methods they're using. The thing about learning and studying information is that it can be done in a way that's totally invisible, where we don't know what students are doing when they're at home, when they're trying to learn. And they can be doing something that feels very effective to them, but they don't necessarily know that it's not effective until they have to show that they know the information. And there's nothing like that reality check that we get on the first exam when we realize, oh, I I didn't learn the information as well as I thought I did. So the nature of spacing and retrieval are not particularly intuitive. They're kind of difficult because retrieving information from memory is harder than just looking at it and reading it over and over again. 
there is a tendency for us to avoid doing things that are difficult, that are challenging, that expose the errors in our knowledge. And so one thing we know from studies on measuring what students do when they try to learn, they tend to avoid these strategies. And although we can't know for certain what every student everywhere is doing, we do know from the research on this that a a consistent pattern of students is to favor the, the techniques that feel like they're learning and that feel effective, reading, highlighting, recopying notes. One challenge that this research can help to confront is students' mindsets about how learning works and what is effective and the role that errors play in learning. If you confront your errors and expose the gaps in your knowledge, which spacing and retrieval practice do very effectively, you can learn better. And you can't really learn most effectively unless you know what it is that you're not learning effectively. Thank you. So maybe if we dig into spacing first and deep dive into that a little bit before we get to retrieval practice, perhaps you could explain a bit more about how spacing works and like why it works and why it's important. Yeah. So this is one strategy for learning that has been around a long time, at least in the literature where people publish scientific articles on learning, which means the world doesn't necessarily know about it because uh, it's studied by researchers, it's, it's in libraries, it's in places that are, that are not very accessible to folks in the world that can use the information. So the first study on spacing was done in the 1800s where information that is trying to be learned was either learned all at once in one session, or the information was broken up and distributed over time. And and it was quite effective for learning that information. Over time, 150 years later, many studies have been done in, in schools, in laboratories, in many different contexts where you simply take some information. So I, I'm thinking of one on high school students learning French vocabulary. You can spend a couple hours on your French vocabulary all in one day and kind of drill some methods of, of what these words mean. Or you can spend the same amount of time and do half an hour one day, half an hour another day, half an hour the next day, where the time adds up and the information that you're learning is the same you just have the time distributed a little bit differently. And then at a later time, students took a test and they did quite a lot better, substantially, significantly better for those who use the method where they did the spaced practice. Why it works, that's a great question. One very effective mechanism, so to speak, of spacing is that it helps take advantage of a a fresh attention span, so to speak. When we try to do anything and we do it for hours at a time, we don't always realize this, but our attention and our ability to take in and learn that information is going down as we persist on trying to learn the task or the material. And if students are doing cramming is is what we call often very, very popular uh, study method. If they're doing this and they're studying for six hours or one student the other day told me 12 hours was, was the longest cramming session they had ever done. Research shows that you're only getting a fraction of that time that, that is effective for the information that you're trying to learn. So why spacing works? One reason is because you take that same amount of time and you give it fresh attention and more effective 
ways of processing that information and actually getting it into your memory. Interesting. So, so what you're saying is, yeah, it's a warning against cramming as a technique, and you're suggesting that cramming definitely is not optimal, and also just front-loading information and hoping that a student's going to remember it sometime later is not optimal either. So if I'm a teacher, perhaps planning for a class of students, or I'm a parent supporting a student at home, how can I help them plan for spaced encounters with the material? Like, What's the best way to think about scheduling that into the future when I'm looking at a course from maybe the start and I want to plan a route to the end? Yeah, that's a good question. A lot of times people ask, they learn about spacing and they, it's not particularly intuitive. Like I say, the way we often learn things is to approach it in a way where we spend a lot of time on it all at once. And we think, oh, if I just spend more time, more hours, it's going to be in my brain at the end of today and I'll remember it and I'll know it and that's going to be good. It's so intuitive to think that way. And then later we come back over the weekend or at some later time and we find, oh, it's not in my brain. It left my brain at some point. That's forgetting. And that is so common. Everybody forgets constantly. One thing we know from the scientific studies on forgetting is that it happens very rapidly, even after something is learned well. So uh, a student can be in school all week and learn about fractions, do really well when asked questions about fractions. The weekend comes, they come back on Monday, and sometimes it's like, wow, did we even talk about fractions at all? That is totally normal. And it happens to everybody. If we were to sit and think for just a moment about what happened last week at work, or what did I have for breakfast last Tuesday, that would be hard to remember. It's not something that memory does not happen just automatically. We have to practice it. We have to exercise it. So I, I mentioned forgetting just as a way to talk about the, the fact that it happens. We can't stop it no matter how hard we try. As far as how to implement spacing, how to use it, I think the best way to think about that is the fact that we forget all the time. And there's no ideal, magical, so to speak, schedule for spacing. I, I think the, the most important part to keep in mind about that is just to revisit material that we've spent time practicing before, even if we feel like we've learned it. The subjective feeling of, of what has been learned is often a little misleading. And sometimes we feel like, oh, yes, I spent this much time studying this. My teacher explained it. I know it so well. The good practical advice in that situation is, well, try to recall it and see if you know it. And many of us in that situation will do that. And we realize, oh, I don't know it as well as I thought I did. So every few days, once a week, as long as it's revisited and practiced, we, we have a good sense of what we truly know, what we can recall, and the gaps in our knowledge where we have forgotten stuff and what we need to go back to and continue practicing. Thank you. If someone's, if a teacher's planning spaced encounters with material, is it reasonable to assume that they're going to have to do some reteaching on those occasions? Like, is there a sense in which being taught things in that repeated and spaced way is powerful, as well as just kind of testing on them in that repeated and spaced way? Yeah, great question. I, I think any of us who have ever been a teacher, we, we've had that experience where we teach something, maybe we spend a lot of time, we plan our lessons, and, and we deliver our information in the best way possible. And then we think, why don't my students know this? I taught this to them multiple times. That's so common. 
And that, again, is a result of forgetting this natural process that happens. One really important thing to keep in mind about spacing is, yeah, if we're going to do it as teachers, we have to expect that students are going to forget some of the information from, from time one to time two. And to understand that that's normal And if we were a student sitting in the class, we would also forget and to be patient with the students and to there are some aspects of the material. Yeah, that they'll have to do some additional practice on and have some some feedback, maybe some explanations. Maybe they didn't understand a concept as well as they thought they did. So practice exercises the expectation to provide feedback as the teacher and to understand that that's normal. It's not students, you know, failing to remember the material because of any motivational aspect or or anything like that. It's just natural learning and memory and the way that it works on a regular basis. Yeah, that's interesting. I think there's definitely a tendency when teachers are preparing a class for an exam that you divide your year into kind of topic spaces. You cover a topic, you test on it, you cover the next topic, you test on it. And that data ends up actually with quite a high currency in the school in terms of what it's intended to reflect about the student's knowledge, about their readiness for the exams. And I suppose what you're saying is a bit of a warning against that. It's saying that actually students will naturally forget things. The fact that they tested at a certain level on something on a given day actually is a poor indicator of how they might test on that same material sometime later. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's so intuitive to go topic by topic. It it makes so much sense. It's so organized. It's so nice. The way to, to incorporate spacing. So topic by topic works. It's okay. One simple way to incorporate spacing is just to insert some learning material or some practice exercises into the subsequent topics that have been taught at an earlier time. And it feels so weird to think about it that way, because as teachers, we think, oh, I've already taught this. Look how well all the students scored on this. They know this. They're they're doing so good. But then, as you just said, a month later, maybe they're not remembering it so well. And that, again, is is a normal thing that happens with our learning. And as you learn more stuff and you move on to more topics, it's even harder to remember things earlier. So simply taking some of that information and just putting it into future lessons down the road is a great way to incorporate spacing. There's a good question of empathy here as well when you're a teacher, which is firstly remembering that things are fresh in your mind all the time because you're working on them all the time yes. and not your students haven't had a fraction of the interactions with that material that you've had over your years as a teacher and also empathy as well with certainly in this country students sit their exams at 16 they have to have seven eight nine subjects worth of material all coming to the boil at the same time ready wow. to sit their exams and clearly that is a process that young people need a lot of help structuring and warming up towards and almost like training for how to manage that material, how to revisit it at the right times, how to revise. So as you've said, just the fact that you have taught something is not really an indicator of how well they're going to be able to marshal that information in the context of a high stakes exam. That's a great point. Yeah. And I I would also just note that a student can score very well on something by studying in ways that are effective for an immediate score 
doesn't necessarily mean that that information has been learned to a durable degree that it will be remembered weeks later or months later. So there's the the important difference between short-term and long-term learning that plays into that as well. Thank you. I'd like to move on to retrieval practice now. I was really intrigued earlier, you mentioned this idea of retrieval practice being counterintuitive. And if I've read your paper correctly, you're suggesting that students will use testing as a almost as like an assessment tool to see how well they remember something. But you seem to be suggesting that actually the testing itself can help them to learn. And so testing and retrieval practice become a learning experience in and of themselves, not just an assessment of learning. Could you say a little bit more about how that works and that counterintuitive effect? Yeah, so any student understands what a test is. It's usually not a positive experience. It can be very stressful. And one way that students will often prepare for tests is to read material, look at material, interact with learning material in a way that does not involve testing themselves. Because the very intuitive, reasonable way to think of a test is, oh, a test is what I do after I've learned the material. But a test, a practice test to distinguish it from an assessment type test is intended to be a learning experience because it does something very effective that none of those other techniques do. And that is, it shows you what you can retrieve from your memory and what you cannot retrieve. That distinction is so important. And we often get there at the exam, the high stakes exam, when we realize, oh, I I know this part, I don't know this part. And the, the high stakes exam has major consequences for grades and for marks that are going to matter for the student. So retrieval practice is just simply practicing to retrieve information, seeing where the gaps are, being able to understand what one knows and understands and what one does not know and understand. Counterintuitive because a lot of students, I think, don't consider it a way to study or a way to prepare for learning material, but it's absolutely effective if you do because it it gives you that information that you need about the current state of your knowledge. In your work, you differentiate between retrieval practice and other types of learning, such as reading or rereading. What are the hallmarks of a good retrieval practice activity that's useful? Yeah, great question. A good retrieval practice activity will require students to completely retrieve information without having something that they can rely on to just verify or or to just look at something and say, yes, I've learned that before. True retrieval, as I would call it, taking information that's being learned, put it aside completely to where there's nothing helping you to retrieve it except your own memory. And it's going to not be perfect. There's going to be gaps. There's going to be challenges where maybe some of it is remembered, some of it is not. But the best and purest way to know what is really in your knowledge and in your memory is to take away all the cues take away anything that makes it easier. And that's challenging. The students will have to confront errors and inaccuracies in their knowledge. But again, that's the best way to know what they know and what they don't know. It's hard to do, but it's the best diagnostic tool for understanding what is in one's memory. Thank you. A term that was new to me when I read your work on this topic was successive relearning, which seemed to me to be almost a combination of the two things, spacing and retrieval. Could you just maybe unpack that term for us, successive relearning, and explain why it's powerful? 
Yeah, that's a name that I like as well. It, it's an interesting way to combine the two strategies. So we know that retrieval practice is effective. We know that spacing is effective. If there's a technique or an approach to be used, that's a very specific, very concrete approach. Successive relearning is it. And that's when learning material is organized in a way that allows uh, students to retrieve it and to get feedback and to understand what the correct answer is so that they can revise and try to get it right next time. They practice retrieving it a number of times. So, and, and this could be any sort of material. It could be scientific terms and definitions. It can be foreign languages. It can be math. Practice retrieving it until they get every item correct. And that could be a while. It could be some some extended practice that they need to do. Then they lay it aside for a couple days, come back to it, do that same process again. And here's where the experience is, is very clear and very salient, where students will run into a situation where they don't remember everything that they remembered two days ago. But this second opportunity to try to learn reveals to them exactly what they know and what they don't know. So they practice again until they get each item right again, lay it aside, two more days, come back to it again. So that's the relearning part of successive relearning. And to do it consistently at these regular intervals is quite effective. The, the research on this shows that studying in that way, learning material in that way, gives you return on the investment because the more you relearn what you've already learned. And the more you expose those gaps in knowledge, the better you do at retaining that information and the better you do a long time later, weeks later on exams and ways of assessing that information. So it's a great way to combine the two techniques. It's quite specific and concrete. And there's nothing magical about the two days. It could be one day, it could be three days. The key would be to try to revisit the material after intervals where not all of it has been forgotten, but enough of it has been laid aside that you can come back with a fresh perspective and see what you really know. Thank you. I think we're getting there into another area of your work, which is about metacognition and is helping students to understand their own learning and understand the processes of their own learning. What does the research say about the value in equipping students with that type of knowledge and talking about it almost in that slightly theoretical way about learning how the brain learns, learning about the psychology of learning. What's the evidence for the value of spending time specifically on those aspects with students? Yeah, metacognition is very important. So the broad definition is how we think about thinking. And so strategies like spacing and retrieval can be used if a teacher or a coach or somebody that's helping us to learn gives us those strategies and says, retrieve this right now and we can do it because we're guided on how to do it. If someone gives us a schedule of when to do it, we can do that. The important aspect to learning how to be an effective learner is to guide and organize these strategies ourselves. And that's a challenging endeavor because the successful learning strategies are, are not particularly obvious and intuitive. If I'm going to try to learn material for any course, for middle school mathematics, and I think, okay, if I just spend enough time on this, I know I've got it. At the end of that day, I really felt like I had it. I might say to myself, okay, I don't need to study this anymore. I've got it pretty good. So I stop learning. And that's a really common decision 
that a lot of learners make at all ages without realizing that being done with something, you know, feeling like we're finished learning it, which never really happens in real life, we don't engage in any further learning of that material when really a good metacognitive strategy would be to revisit it later again, just to keep that knowledge fresh. When to engage in learning, how to engage in learning is so important. And it's important that we try to develop some abilities in students to do that themselves because they're not going to be in school forever. If we want to build successful learners for future jobs and future situations, teaching metacognition, developing good metacognition is absolutely essential so that good learning can be sustained after the school years. I was interested in your review that you also tied the idea of metacognition to the increasing availability of online resources that are available, like the many more opportunities people have now to teach themselves things and to learn themselves things, to learn things for themselves without being in a formal environment or an environment where there's a teacher on hand to guide them. Maybe you'd like to expand upon that a little bit. So how does a good grounding in metacognition equip young people to manage online resources, online learning platforms, YouTube videos, Wikipedia, etc. Yeah, great question. I learning as we've seen these last few decades is becoming increasingly digitized, increasingly flexible in ways that people can access information and the way that they can use it. It's everywhere all the time. And so is information that's not always good and trustworthy and reliable. And whether a student is taking a course from an online environment where the learning is up to them, it, maybe it's asynchronous where they can learn the material, but they have to sort of pace themselves and decide when they're going to do it. That is where metacognition is absolutely key. No one's giving them the days and the structure and the things that they need to do and when they need to do them. So having some skills and some knowledge of when to engage in learning and how to engage in learning is going to become increasingly important for knowledge and skills that students have to acquire on their own. And later, as they have to acquire these things in their jobs or, or in other situations, knowing how to discern information that can be credible from information that's less credible or not at all credible is, is an issue that's increasing in importance all the time because there's no filter on information that gets posted online. And being able to verify information, what's the accuracy of this information, those kind of self-regulation skills, as we call them, are going to get increasingly important as, as learning becomes more and more accessible without necessarily being filtered by anybody to make sure that it's accurate and trustworthy. Thank you. Some of the people listening to this will be parents who are supporting a child who's at some point in the future got to take exams. If you have a child now who's in year 11, so 15 going on 16, they have their big end of year 11 exams coming up starting in about three, four months time from now. So we want to try and give those parents some advice in terms of supporting the revision that has to go into that. A lot of parents will have seen their children make a revision timetable. So something that occurs to me as a really good starting point is to, first of all, find out specifically from the school what it is that your children actually need to learn. And maybe don't be satisfied with your child just writing English and maths into different blocks on their revision timetable. Make sure that you have a list of topics, that the child knows the list of topics, and then that the topics are themselves 
spaced for multiple encounters between now and the exam. So don't leave one topic to a particular time. Make sure there's that revision, that spacing going on throughout. What's some other guidance maybe you would give parents who have a student at home just for helping their child do revision and practice that is useful within the home? Great question. Yeah, that's a good one for learning doesn't doesn't always happen just in the walls of a school. Of course, it, it, information has to be thought about and practiced and students spend a good bit of their time at home studying and preparing for the information that they're learning in school. I do. I like that idea of scheduling a revision table where they sort of map out what they're going to learn and when the content to be learned obviously very important thing to map out and and to prepare for. A schedule is absolutely at the heart of spacing and why it's effective. And I think students understanding, maybe even if they don't really get it at first, but that this is a good thing to do and trying it. So in the table, in the schedule that they're drawing up to include not just things that have to be learned, but the revisiting of those things, the the repracticing of things that have already been practiced is a wonderful strategy and plan. And that can be followed if it's planned out and it's made into a, a nice organized plan that can absolutely be done. And to practice with retrieving instead of, oh, I'll look at this page of stuff that I wrote or I'll read my book. Oh yeah, this looks so familiar. I remember this. I got this. Yeah. That's the great temptation that every student goes through when retrieving is hard. We don't always want to do it, or maybe we never want to do it. And that's true of every learner at every age, but we're selling ourselves short. If we just look at stuff and we think, oh, this is familiar. I'm sure I know this. Always try to see if you know it. And that will tell you the answer of whether you really get it or not and whether you remember it. And having learned it at some previous point in time does not protect our brains from keeping that information in our brains. Just like, you know, nobody can remember exactly what they had for breakfast two years ago on a Tuesday. We forget information. We're trying to learn in school information in everyday life. I I think planning it out, sticking to that plan, and also teaching and encouraging a culture of errors are okay. They're not just okay, they're absolutely necessary for learning. And when you're studying and revising and, and trying to prepare information to be known over the long term, you're not always gonna get it right every time you try to retrieve it, every time you, you try to practice it, and that's okay. And knowing where those errors are is like diagnosing a, a medical condition and knowing how to treat it. Effective revising and learning depends on knowing where those errors are. I feel like these techniques are going to help a lot with exam stress with students as well. So something I've experienced working with sort of exam students is often the stress about preparing for an exam comes from the feeling that the material is like a big cloud hanging over your head that you can't get to grips with. Something I was taught, I remember at school, was to find a huge piece of paper and to physically write down everything on it and get all of the information that you need in one place and like getting that quite specific quite granular understanding of everything that you need to know and actually making a list of it mapping it out onto a schedule onto a timetable breaking it down into those smaller pieces is really important for students to cut down some of the stress factor of revising and then I like the idea that doing frequent retrieval tests as a kind of a constant diagnostic for yourself of where you are in that process as you've suggested it might not always be a comfortable experience to be confronted with things that you thought you knew but didn't 
but you've used the term overconfidence in your work and I think that's probably going to ring true with a lot of students and parents and teachers that feeling that yeah the student as you've said will say don't worry I got this but actually unless they've got tools at their disposal for checking whether they've got it or not then yeah they're heading towards a bigger stress later on when it turns up on the day of the exam actually haven't got it at all yes that's right Yeah. And to that point about the exam anxiety, I very much experienced that too as a student. And there's nothing like these high stakes exams that are going to determine how well you're performing and maybe determine your future that are like anxiety inducing, not fun experiences at all. There is some research on how just practicing retrieval over time greatly reduces exam anxiety. And part of that, I think, is just the fact of getting used to it, understanding, okay, this is a process where I can use my memory, I can exercise my memory. You're better prepared because you know the material better. You've had a little practice, so to speak, at retrieving the information. So when you get to the exam, it's like, okay, I've done this before. I know exactly how this works. Thank you. My own background is as an English teacher, and I'm struck by the fact that in English, there's obviously there's a heavy kind of knowledge base to that subject in terms of there are things that you study texts poems whatever that you're then tested on you need a good knowledge of them to be able to write about them fluently in the exam but English is also a creative subject where you might have to do a piece of creative writing or you might have to read something you haven't read before a poem that you've not seen before and kind of analyze it fresh and I'm wondering how you feel these approaches of spacing and retrieval practice how are they relevant to maybe assessment or learning that is a little bit more creative in nature or a bit more imaginative in nature and not just based on the recall of individual facts great question yeah that's a common one that that comes up when teachers and sometimes students want to know how do i get better at you know analyzing information or integrating information or using information the information is sort of like blocks. You can have very simple units where you have like a definition for something or a, or a formula that you learn. And then depending on how far you want to take it, you can go quite complex and you can get into domains where you're creating things out of information that are partly a result of your your own decisions and your own ways of thinking about how to put information together. Retrieval and spacing definitely help with those lower level blocks of information. Those are kind of the easiest things to study. And so we know the most about that. They can also help with the more complex forms of knowledge. If the smaller building blocks are there and they have to be in order to put them together and and to integrate them, the related question that I often get in this context is, well, what if I want my students to know more complex forms of knowledge? What if I want them to be able to apply and use this information, not just memorize it? And the answer is, well, give them practice at doing that. If they have practice at knowing the building blocks, the the, the facts and the concepts, move on to the more complex questions. One concrete strategy that that I've talked with some teachers about is literally write out the question that you want students to be able to answer. 
Maybe it's a complex question. Maybe it's a take this information and create a piece of writing or a concept that incorporates these things in the following ways. And in order to know if they're doing that, you have to know what the right answers or what the potential right answers could be. So that's harder to assess, but it can absolutely be done. And just like with the smaller chunks of information, you know, teachers would be prepared to give feedback to help students understand what they did right, what they still need to work on. So there's research on both sort of domains of knowledge and that spacing and retrieval can help with those. One piece of advice I would give is to be patient with students when when they're learning something for the very first time, they might need to spend a little more time in those blocks, in those building blocks of facts and concepts before they can move on and, and start to integrate them. But we had to do that too when we were students. And so that's a worthwhile investment of time to make sure they understand those things. Absolutely. I think, and again, speaking for my own subject, English, I think teachers can often definitely not spend enough time on just the simple what happens in this book. If you're studying a play by Shakespeare, those are in themselves quite complex and things that seem completely intuitive to you because you know the material very well. You forget the kind of months and years that it took for you to become intuitive with it. And actually for students, even something as simple as sitting and watching a film or watching the play is very complex and demanding because they're dealing with something that's completely unfamiliar. They're dealing with language that can be quite complex as well. Something else I was just reflecting on is that processes that seem maybe more imaginative or creative, such as like doing a painting or writing a story or looking at an unseen poem, in a sense, you maybe can't revise information that's directly applicable to the thing you might read, but they do themselves have their own kind of cognitive processes and methods of doing them as well that you can also try and teach so again your ability to model writing a short story is not something that you were just blessed with miraculously it's a process you've (laughs) arrived at yourself through repetition through specific techniques that you go to through modeling specific things that you've read and so for those more imaginative and creative tasks there is still a method and a way that can be modeled and spaced and tested on and it is a case of maybe doing a little bit of self-reflection and breaking it down into the chunks that you use yourself mm-hmm. that you can then deliver to students in that repeated and that spaced out way. So the same kind of principle will apply, even if, the, as you say, the blocks, the type of block that you're trying to get across to the student might be different as well. Yes, that's exactly right. And I would also say that the errors, revealing the errors or the ways that students engage with material, the output that they make that's not exactly correct, so to speak, can be extremely useful, not just to the student, but to the teacher for understanding where is it that students typically go off course when they're trying to learn this particular concept or this particular integrative activity, because not that Every student makes the exact same errors, but there are definitely some common ones that if a teacher has tried to model these things and teach these things for a while, they can grow a little more accustomed to what to expect. And that's, I think that's a very important part of teaching and learning as well. Is there any evidence or research on the impact of these strategies for neurodiverse learners? There is research on that. And the good news is, spacing and retrieval work for a wide variety of learners. There's some research on children with ADHD and different conditions where that impact learning in ways that we didn't even realize 20 years ago, 30 years ago. And as I say, the, the upshot is 
they are very effective strategies where the learning material, no matter what it is, benefits from these strategies. The thing to keep in mind, I suppose, with diverse learners is not everybody is always at the same point in their knowledge or in their ways that they engage with information. But the key to handling that kind of a situation is just repeated practice. So maybe in a classroom of second graders, we've got kids at different levels, maybe with their reading abilities, with their different ways that they engage with information. You do a retrieval practice activity. One student gets it 100% right because just loves, people have lots of diversity in their memory abilities. Other students in the class maybe don't get any of it right. Keep practicing, keep giving the feedback so that students understand what it is that they're supposed to be learning, and then continued practice with retrieval, with spacing, does it every time where, you know, some learners might be a little slower to acquire the information. But if you keep at it and you keep giving the feedback and they see themselves getting better, that's very reinforcing for students. Thank you. If a teacher or someone, maybe a leader in a school is listening to this and these are all completely new terms to them, spacing, retrieval, metacognition, and they just realise, wow, there is no culture of this in my school, in my learners at all. What do you think is a good way to kick that process off? Or where do you start by tackling these topics or introducing them in your education environment? Yeah, great question. So I teach a a number of classes where I I spend a good bit of time with my students early on in the course, where I basically tell them everybody has a bad memory. (laughs) I have a bad memory. I do some little demonstrations where I show them I have a bad memory. And they think that's funny because I teach a class on memory. And I talk about forgetting and how I don't expect any of my students to just rapidly take in information and remember it perfectly. But here are some ways that you can slow down your forgetting of information. And if your performance in this class is important to you, these are the things that you would be, would be beneficial for you to do. And then I talk about spacing and retrieval and give them some very concrete ways to do it. So all of the classes I teach, I write practice questions for students. I make it mandatory where they have to do these practice questions after every single class that we have. And it's a it's a small number of questions, like three to five questions over what did we learn today? They could be simple questions. They don't take long to do. And the idea is to get students to do them right after class and they can see, oh, wow, I actually remember what we talked about. And, and this is good. They get one the next class. They get one the next class. These are not graded. And I think that's important. Students, if they complete them, and if they try, and it's easy to tell if they are, (laughs) then they receive full marks for completing it and for trying. And I give them feedback in the questions. These are delivered through an online course management system. But I know other teachers who do uh, low-tech note cards in class that they hand out at the end, and they'll have a couple questions that the students answer. A teacher providing practice questions, I think, is very good. That makes it quite efficient and quite straightforward for students. They know exactly what to answer. It's a nice way to incorporate these into classes. Just recently, I talked with a teacher who told me about her entire school starting to incorporate this. And all that had to happen was that the students needed some practice questions over the stuff that they were learning in their classes. The teachers would get together for meetings and talk about how it was going. And they just saw this wonderful 
benefit of the students learning the stuff well, being able to remember the information. I think a nice concrete way to just dive in and to get started is to understand that these practice questions are so effective. And, you know, teachers can write questions and and give them to students to practice recalling. And if you do that, maybe at first you'll get a little pushback. My students don't love it at first, but we persist. We keep going. They see their benefits in their memory and they understand how to learn stuff better. And by the end of the term, they actually like the practice questions, especially when they see how they relate to the stuff that they're learning for the exam. That's really interesting. Thank you. I suppose if everybody had a perfect memory, then memory would not be a very interesting field to research. There wouldn't be very much to say about it. Yeah. So with that in mind, where can listeners go for more information on this topic or some resources to help them get started? Yeah, the research on this, as I mentioned earlier, it is often behind published in journals where it's not particularly easy to access. The good news is that is changing. There are a number of scientific journal articles, chapters in books, entire books that are written on how to learn stuff effectively. I have a website. My research is all available and published on my university website. I specialize in writing content that can be directly communicated to teachers and to students about ways of taking spacing and retrieval and other techniques and using it in a very specific, very concrete way in classes that can be used that is quite effective. And so I have all of these available. They don't have to pay for this information. It's there. It's downloadable. That can just be directly read and used. And I think it is an easy way to access that information. And these articles or chapters, of course, have descriptions and citations to other researchers who are also doing this work. I think that's a wonderful starting point for anybody who's interested. And then to follow those leads, if there's an article that talks about a particular strategy or approach, the information is there that can be followed up on and found and also read. So I think The research is becoming more accessible all the time, and that's a a really wonderful thing. How can parents and teachers find your publications online? Yeah, so I have a website. I can provide it. I can give the address for it if that's of interest. I am Googleable, just like everybody. Uh, you can find find it that way, or so I can Google Doctor Shana Carpenter memory. I should find it straight away. Yes, yes, you'll find it. Yeah, it's not hard. I have a name that's not totally unique, but unique enough that it'll it'll hit that website and it'll take you right to it if you Google that. Thank you. Obviously, you're someone with quite a wide reaching interest in this topic, in learning and in memory. What are you working on now and what do you think are the next things to be cracked in this field? Oh, yeah. So the research I mentioned, about 150 years of research on spacing and retrieval, we know that these things work. They've been done in so many different contexts with so many different kinds of materials, literally with pre-kindergarten all the way to older adults. The next step that is a challenge that's harder to do is to find ways of getting these techniques into educational situations where they can really do some help and where they can be utilized and where they can help with students learning the stuff that they need to know in their studies. And there are a number of barriers, one of which has to do with kind of how these techniques are thought of or or how they're perceived. 
and the trouble that a lot of people have confronting errors in their knowledge. Even if you teach students about these strategies and say they're so good, look at the learning benefits that happen as a result of these, when in the moment a student will often have the opportunity to use retrieval or not. And retrieval and spacing are kind of like eating broccoli. Yes, it's good for you. Yes, it will be beneficial. Oh man, but I just don't like the taste of broccoli, right? So there needs to be research into ways of how do we get students to do this when we know it's good, they even know it's good, and to motivate them to use these strategies on their own, which is really the next step in getting it to be usable and sustainable and something they use throughout their lives. So that's an important thing. I'm working on right now. There are some leads that that seem promising that we can follow. It's tough though. It's not like a like a quick easy thing and I think teachers need to know that because when you do confront the challenges and the difficulties just to give some encouragement and to persist and to keep going and the benefits will be there. Thank you. Dr. Shana Carpenter, this has been very, very interesting, very informative. Lots of good leads for parents and teachers to follow, good starting points suggested. And I would just like to really thank you for your time and thank you for the work that you're doing in supporting learners in different contexts. Thank you very much. Thank you. This podcast is brought to you by Tooled Up Education, the home of evidence-based tips on parenting, family life and education. www.tooledupeducation.com Parents and teachers in Tooled Up schools can also access notes accompanying each podcast available to read and download from the Tooled Up site.